The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we do thank you for your gifts to us this week. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from you, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no shifting shadows, no, no change, no variation. We know that you are constantly good and that anything that was given to us was from your hand for our good providentially. And Lord, we do thank you as Frank prayed for the restoration of health to many in our congregation and in our assembly. God, we thank you for uh, your grace in that. We thank you, uh, even as the psalmist says, it's good at times that we're afflicted, that we may know your word, that we may know you better, and we thank you for that. And I do also with Frank uh, pray for these training institutes, Lord, and thank you for the work that's being done. Thank you for the people that you've called, Father, that have a heart uh, to see these nations trained so that pastors can go and care for people in each of these places. Lord, I think of Carlos Montoya and of Frank prayed for Japan. I think about Honduras, Lord, and just ask that uh, you bless that ministry there, that you bless Carlos and his family, and that, uh, Father, the people of Honduras would benefit from the fruit of their labor. God, I ask you for this church here, for the ministry that we have this morning of encouraging each other, of bearing each other's burdens, of uh, inspiring and, and admonishing each other to continue on in faith. Uh, and we ask, God, that you would make us faithful to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to look together. You can go ahead and turn to John 20 uh, in your copies of the scriptures. But we are on our last week of a six-week uh, series. We started with Jude, well, David, in more than six weeks, started with Jude and we said, hey, Jude was warning that false teachers would come and that they would look to justify their own licentious behavior and they would introduce doctrine that would demean, reject Jesus by demeaning his glory, by making, uh, speaking in a way that would lessen Jesus' glory and make Jesus more like them. And we said that doctrine has had many shapes and many forms, but it's lasted over the centuries, over the millennia, you could say, until this day in one particular form, and that is one which denies Jesus' eternal preexistence. Not preexistence, but eternal preexistence. This doctrine says he's, Jesus is the first created being who then created all other beings. And so he's worthy of really great glory, just not quite the same honor as the Father. So we looked over the weeks at three verses that are used to demonstrate that Jesus was created. And we said, that's not what those verses mean. You remember Colossians 1? We looked at that together and we explained how that's related to Jesus' incarnation, not a pre-creation creation, if you could say it like that. We looked at Revelation 3. We said that was really about Jesus' resurrection unto glory, the firstborn of the dead. And then last week, after a little bit of a break, we looked at Proverbs 8. And we said, hey, there's two possibilities. Either that's not at all about Jesus, which actually Frank's going to talk a little bit about in terms of hermeneutics and just the you know caution in trying to apply too much, especially when it's not explicit. And, and that's a view that I definitely sympathize with. Or even if it is about Jesus, remember, created was not the right translation, right? It was got, and it was birth language. And whatever is meant by that birth language or the establishment language in Proverbs 8.23, it happened from ages in the past. It started, it looked at creation, and it said, as far back as you can go, that's when it happened. 
And we said that same language was used in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or before you ever gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So in the same way, we wouldn't argue that God had a beginning just a long time ago. In the same way, we would say wisdom had no beginning. So the conclusion we reached was Jesus was never created. Those verses are not about Jesus' creation. On the contrary, Jesus is the creator of everything that has ever been created. And so we will replace those three verses, Colossians 1, Revelation 3, and Proverbs 8, with these three verses, right? John 1, 3. All things came into being by Jesus, and apart from him came into being, nothing came into being that has come into being. Or Colossians 1.16, by Jesus, all things were created. And he goes on to list anything you could think of, whether heavens or earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created by Jesus and for Jesus. And lastly, one we, we didn't read yet, it's the first time I've read it, but uh, Revelation 5.13 is a praise to the Father and the Son. And here's what the, the praise says, every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, again, everywhere you can think of, visible, invisible, sea, land, heaven, earth, everything, everything, all of them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. But there was one more verse, and as I introduce it, John 20, I want to remind you that though this has been a little bit of a, a heady study, it isn't just theoretical. You'll recall that denying Jesus, ascribing to him less glory than his due, is a serious matter. I mean, Jude said to contend against it. If you deny the, the son, you lose the father. It's a, it's a very serious thing, as would be giving too much glory to something. I mean, that's the nature of idolatry, is if you give too much glory to something that doesn't deserve it, that's just as dangerous. So while this is a heady matter, it's a very serious matter. And so it's important that we look at it. It's not just theoretical. And on the other hand, second, you know, this, as David mentioned, came about in my own experience in California. Uh, those three verses we've looked at were things that were brought to me and brought to my attention and challenged with uh, by a Jehovah's Witness that was very, very knowledgeable. And this one was as well, John 20, 17. Same thing. This was not a theoretical thing. This was in my living room. John 20, 17, context is the resurrection of Jesus. He's appearing to Mary Magdalene. She recognizes him. And Jesus asks her to leave and to go tell the other disciples that she had seen him. He says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. He explicitly says he's going to his God and to their God. So if Jesus is God, what does that mean? Does that mean, if you, I don't know if you noticed the title of this sermon, does that mean God has a God? Is that what we're saying? That's the question that was posed to me in California. If the Father is the God of Jesus, then how is Jesus himself God? In other words, if Jesus is fully divine, as we've been arguing, and we do believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, how is Jesus God and yet considers another to be his God? So that's the question we want to answer today. And here's the plan. We're going to go through five different things. We're going to look at the evidence. Is Jesus really called God? You know, we've explained some verses that are often used to say he was created. And it's the, it's the nature of God to not be created. That's a part of what it means to be God. So, you know, we've, we've, we've knocked those pillars out and said, no, that's not true. Jesus, those verses do not teach that Jesus was created. But we haven't given a lot of positive evidence to say, hey, Jesus is God. We've just sort of, 
you know, defended the notion that he was created, defended against the notion that he was created. We want to look because people say, hey, Jesus never himself said he was God. Nobody ever said that he was God. And we want to look at the evidence. Is that true? Is Jesus really called God? Second, is the Father really called the God of Jesus? That's what John 20, 17 says. But is that a one-off? Is that a is that an odd thing? And maybe we need to try to explain that one in a certain way. Or is it said of, of the Father multiple places that he's the God of Jesus? So we'll look at evidence for that. And we're going to find... Uh, that there's evidence for both. And we'll have to do some explaining as a result. So the next part is we'll say, okay, Jesus is God. What does that mean? Well, we're going to ask the question, what do we mean by God in general? When we use the word God, what, what do we mean when we say that word? And then what do we mean, therefore, when we say Jesus is God specifically? And then lastly, we're going to try to answer what it means that the Father is Jesus's God, despite Jesus himself being God. What does that mean? Does God have a God? Is that how we would say it? Okay, so let's start with the first part, which is evidence that Jesus is indeed referred to, called God. Uh, for each of these first two sort of evidence, you know, we're just going to try to see in the scriptures that these are true. We're going to look at the New Testament and then the Old Testament and some quotes from really early church fathers. And there's much more evidence that could be presented concerning Jesus being God, like, for instance, the use of the word Lord when he's called Lord in context where in the Old Testament that phrase was used of Yahweh, right? That would be something we could look at. But today I just want to ask the question, is Jesus called God, the Greek word theos, from which we get theology, right? Is Jesus called God? And I'd ask you before I flip to a couple, uh, can you think of things that you would bring up if someone said, Jesus is never called God. Like, where would you go? You don't have to say it out loud, but just be thinking about that. Because it isn't as often as the Father is called God, that is to be sure, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But where is Jesus called God? What would we say if someone said he's, he's never referred to as God? Well, the first and most obvious, and you can turn to these, I would encourage you to. Uh, we're just going to read them. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I would encourage you to lay eyes on them. Is John 1. And uh, John is the gospel that focuses the most on Jesus' deity. And so the first three will all be from the gospel of John. John 1.1, right? That would be probably, I would guess, what 90% of you, if you answered in your mind, what 90% of you said first is, I would first think of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So we'd say, yeah, Jesus is very clearly called God in the scriptures. But just 17 verses later, look down. No one has seen God at any time. Who is that? Who are we talking about there? God. The Father. No one's seen the Father at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained them. Now, just a little bit of textual uh, criticism, if you've ever heard that term. Just, you know, uh, we have a number of preserved texts, original texts uh, that we have, thousands of manuscripts. But some are really ancient, really old, right? And we only have one of those that look like that, or two, very small numbers. And those earliest manuscripts say here, the only begotten God. And then we have thousands of manuscripts that are a little bit later, that were copied later, and many of those say the only begotten Son. So if you 
study textual criticism, which we don't a lot in here, and we're thankful for people who do, but if you do, there's two different uh, persuasions. There's two different uh, ways of thinking about it. There's, hey, I'd take the oldest, even though there's not as many of them, that would be what I would think would be the most original. And that's where most modern versions, the Legacy Standard Bible reading from, the New American Standard, the ESV, whatever you probably have in your lap probably says the only begotten God. But the King James Version, you know, centuries ago, chose the other route and said, hey, we think the vast preponderance of manuscripts is the one that we should follow. And that's where it says the only begotten son. So I, I share that as a little bit of a, an asterisk on this one. But Jesus is called here in the earliest manuscripts, the only begotten God. John twenty twenty eight. go to the end of John. This is just 11 verses after Jesus calls the Father his God, right? That was John twenty seventeen. So just 11 verses after that, Jesus has appeared to the disciples. We read this last week, remember? Uh, Thomas didn't believe. He wanted to see Jesus. Once he sees him, Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God, right? And that's uh, very clearly an indication of someone early on. So, I mean, this is something, again, that we've talked about throughout the life of Christ. It was a doctrine that took time to understand that this man was more than a man, that he had a glorious preexistence. This was something that took time. But Thomas here is amazed in an exclamation, writes, my Lord, says, my Lord and my God. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews is after all the Pauline epistles. It's the first one after all Paul's epistles. So you have Paul's largest in Romans, or one of his largest in Romans, and they sort of uh, go through mostly in decreasing order of size, and then you get to Hebrews, which is the largest of the non-Pauline, and similarly, to some degree, gets smaller in size. And in Hebrews 1, where the author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to angels and saying how he's so much more glorious and different than angels, he says in verse 8, in a reference to the psalm we read this morning. I don't know if you caught that. We'll talk a little bit more about it in just a second when we look at the Old Testament evidence. In reference to Psalm 45, he says, Of the Son, the psalmist says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he looks at the Son and he says, Your throne, the throne that you rule on, O God, and he calls him God. So there's another example of Jesus, of the Son, being referred to as God. I'm going to do one more. There are others, and each of these, as you might guess, are hotly disputed, uh, but I just wanted to give you five. Revelation 22.6, this is one that in my experience is not called out very much uh, as being about Jesus, but I'll give you my reason for believing that it is. The very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 6, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. Most people think that's the Father, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. But the reason why I'm not convinced of that is look at verse 16 just below. When Jesus, in his last thing besides, in his last statement besides I'm coming quickly, says, I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things. So in verse 6, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to bear witness to people about it. And Jesus says, I, I sent my angel to do that. In verse 1 of chapter 1 of Revelation, the very beginning, says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon happen. 
And he indicated this by sending it through his angel. And again, even that's a little bit debated in terms of whether that's the Father or Jesus. But it seems to be Jesus that's sending his angel to, to testify to these things. And it's that person, whoever's doing that, that is the God of the spirits of the prophets. So there's five New Testament examples where Jesus is referred to as God, Theos. Now, think about the Old Testament. That's going to be hard to find in the Old Testament, right? Because um, it, it wasn't as clear. Again, this is a, a doctrine that progressed and became more clear over time. But I can think of at least two that I would call out. Uh, one is Isaiah 9, 6, right? Where uh, we, we, we read about this um, and said, you know, I, I think this is talking about Hezekiah in its original context. He was the one that stood up and uh, trusted the Lord and defeated the king of Assyria. And that is who I think Isaiah has in mind when he says a child was born to us, a son was given. We talked about how his name, Hezekiah, means the strong God or the mighty God. We talked about wonderful counselor. The book of Chronicles talks about the counsel he provided to, you know, shut off the springs outside the city so that the army wouldn't be able to, to find water when they came. Um, at the same time, we've said very clearly multiple times that even if that's the case, even if a prophet was speaking about an event in their time, that doesn't mean that God, who's the true author overall, doesn't see it as fulfilled, doesn't know more than the speaker did. And we always use the example of Caiaphas, right, who was high priest and said, Jesus needs to die. And he meant something by that, right? But being high priest, he was actually prophesying through that. And that's the trait case in Isaiah 7, where it talks about a young maiden will be with child. And Isaiah went and approached the prophetess and bore a son, Mahershala Hashbaz. But it doesn't mean that that didn't have a greater fulfillment in Jesus, who was born not of a maiden, but of a virgin, right? Or Zephaniah in Zephaniah 1, where it says, the world is going to be wiped off. It's going to be destroyed. And, and he's talking about Babylon destroying Judah. But in God's providence, through his prophet, he's talking about a future day of the Lord when the world really is wiped clean. Similarly, Hezekiah can be called mighty God. His name means mighty God, strength of God, strength of Yahweh specifically. But Jesus fulfills this in a much different way. Even in chapter 10, if you did turn to Isaiah 9, turn to chapter 10, verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Exact same word referring to the Father. So again, this is an example where I think in its fulfillment in Jesus, he's called in the Old Testament, the mighty God. He's called God. The last one is what we read today, Psalm 45, uh, verses 7 and 8. In, in English, it's 6 and 7. Those are Hebrew numbers when I, when I say uh, 7 and 8. But in English, verse 6 in spe specifically, and again, we saw it in Hebrews, so this is what Hebrews was quoting. This is what David read earlier. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So here you have the king referred to as God, and obviously the author of Hebrews says that's talking about Jesus. Now lastly, church fathers. Did church fathers have qualms with calling Jesus God, or did the earliest church fathers... Likewise, refer to Jesus as God. Here's Ignatius. Ignatius was born right around the time that Jesus died, right around 30 AD. So very first century. These would have been, this, he would have been around when the apostles were around. And he speaks in his writings of the love of Jesus Christ, our God. The love of Jesus Christ, our God. Justin Martyr, 
who was born right around the time of the Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome, around 70 AD, claims that Christ is called both God and Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts. Irenaeus, who was the disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was the disciple of the apostle John, Irenaeus specifically affirms the three persons of the Trinity and immediately goes on to call Jesus our Lord, our God, and Savior and King, according to the will of the Invisible Father. That's Irenaeus. And lastly, Hippolytus, which was late 2nd century, so a little bit later, he asserts that Jesus is the Son of God who, being God, became man. So again, the New Testament, the Old Testament, early church fathers don't hesitate, although it's not as often as they refer to the Father as Theos or God, they do refer to Jesus in that way. Now the second part, is the Father really called the God of Jesus? And this is easier to prove than the previous one because there's no debate uh, about this and whether you believe in the Trinity or not, uh, but let's look at it. And there's ample evidence just as before. We read John 20, but Revelation 3, we won't turn to all these, but go ahead and turn to Revelation 3. This is Jesus. Remember the first three chapters of Revelation speak about his glory, his resurrected and ascended glory, and uh, you know, show a picture of him among the churches as the Lord of glory, the Lord of the churches. And in Revelation 3.12, four times Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, this is what the one, excuse me, that's chapter 2, verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. Four times Jesus refers to the Father as his God. It's, it's the same in verse 2 of chapter 3. It's the same in verse 6 of chapter 1. In the Gospels we have it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the epistles of the New Testament, a consistent phrase which affirms, used all the time by each of the apostles, affirms that the Father is the God of Jesus. You know it, right? They speak of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just the Father. He's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 1.17 Paul refers to him as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't even say the God and Father. He's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember in the passage, maybe not, we studied about head coverings, but in that passage, 1 Corinthians eleven three, Paul says that God is the head of Christ. So lots of evidence that the Father is referred to as the God of Jesus. Now what about the Old Testament? Uh, I shouldn't have asked you to turn, but if it's easy to turn back to Psalm 45, in that same passage that we read this morning and that clearly calls the Son God, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. One verse later, you might have caught this, one verse later, after saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, who's that? The Father. Therefore, God, your God. So whoever's God in verse 6, you, your throne, O God, has a God, right? Your God, God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So even in the Old Testament, you have that. And there are other Old Testament texts applied to Jesus in the New Testament, like the one where he says, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22. In Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8, I won't read it, but it's quoted in Hebrews 10. It's the one that says, Behold, I come, and the scroll of you it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. That's, again, referring to the Father as the God of the one to come, the God of Jesus. 
All right, and quickly, church fathers, did they also use this language? Absolutely. Polycarp, I mentioned him earlier, right? An immediate disciple of the Apostle John. He uses that same phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Irenaeus, his disciple, the one who earlier called Jesus God, uh, in confessing belief of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, refers to the Father as God of, of Jesus. And Justin Martyr, listen to Justin Martyr, who we spoke about earlier as well. This is a quote from him. We reasonably worship him, this is Jesus, having learned he is the Son of the true God himself and holding him in the second place and the prophetic spirit in the third, that we will prove. For they proclaim our madness to consist in this, that we give to a crucified man a place second to the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of all. So again, in a context talking about worshiping Jesus and that we do that, uh, he speaks of God as being the eternal God, the creator of all, the one over all. So just a quick summary of what we've seen. The writers of scripture, the early church fathers affirm both of the following statements. Jesus is God. The Father is the God of Jesus. Now we need to determine how do we reconcile? How do those two things go together? So let's start really simple. What do we mean? Let's ask the question, what do we mean by God? What are we, what are we doing when we use that? And I think there's three different ways that we use the word God. See if you agree with me. See if you see each of these. First is almost like a title. I'm going to call it identification. It's like a name almost, right? God. God is my strong fortress. 2 Samuel 22, right? We're talking, we're identifying God. That's his name. That's his title, right? We're pointing as it were. It's, it's like David went to the store. I'm not describing, I'm, I'm identifying him, right? God is my strong fortress. Or Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie. Who's not a man? God. God is not a man. Psalm 47, 7, God is the king of all the earth. Who's the king of all the earth? God. So this, when we use God in this way, we're answering the question, who? Right? We're, we're saying that we're identifying him with this. It's God. right? Or Matthew 21, the kingdom of God. This is the most common way the Bible uses God. It's, it's almost like a title. It's how you refer to the Father. right? Therefore, God, your God, that's an interesting one, has anointed you. right? The first one, therefore, God is identifying the Father. That's one way that we use the word God in the Bible. Second is not identifying, not like a name or a title, but to describe to describe. What do we describe? Well, in the second case that I want you to think of, I want you, it just describes someone who is sovereign or over somebody, who's due submission or due honor, right? Even if they aren't truly what we would call divine, and I'm going to define that term in just a second, but think about some of these ways that the Bible uses God, not to, to really posit true deity per se, but just to say, this thing is sovereign over or over something, or things submit to this. Think about Philippians 3, when Paul is describing the enemies of the cross of Christ. He says that they have as their bellies, their God is their bellies, right? What does he mean when he says their bellies are their God? It means they're driven by it. They submit to their lust and passions for food and things, right, and desires. He's not deifying their bellies. He's just conveying the thought that they're controlled by their appetites and lusts. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is called the God of this world. What does he mean? It means the world is under his sway. It means the world submits to him and follows his lead. He's not saying that Satan is God in, in other senses as he is, right? He's really saying he's, he's over him. He's sovereign or chemosh 
is called the God of Moab in 1 Kings 11, right? Is, is Chemosh even a thing? No, I mean, the New Testament makes clear there's no such thing. We have so-called gods, but there's really only one true God, right? But we can call Chemosh the God because Chemosh is the idol, the thing that they submit to and follow and give reverence to. Psalm 97, those who are called God, those who are gods are told to worship the Lord. Or Habakkuk 1, the strength of the Chaldeans is their God. 1 Corinthians 8, the many gods of the world are contrasted with the true God. That's another way that you see the word God used. It's talking about that sovereignty without saying more than that. And then finally, there's a very similar usage in that it's descriptive. Again, the first one answered the question, who? God did this. God was. God. The second one answered the question, what? Right? It's a being. It's a, a being that's due reverence or given reverence, even if it's not due. Right? Your bellies aren't due reverence, but some people give the reverence that they shouldn't to it. Uh, the third one is similar to that second. It's answering the question, what? But it's doing it in the true sense of the word God, in the true sense of a divine being. And we don't, examples are really easy, right? I mean, Deuteronomy 7, Yahweh, your God, he is God. Now, how do we identify this person in this verse? Not through God, through his name, Yahweh, right? But then we describe him with the word God. Yahweh, your God, he is God. In the true sense, someone who's due worthy, excuse me, due worship, is worthy, is to be submitted to, who has the attributes of deity, which we'll talk about in just a second. Or 1 Kings 18, if Yahweh is your God, follow him. 1 Corinthians 8, there is one God, the Father. Now, it might help if I give a couple of analogies to explain myself that are not in the divine realm. Um, first, think about the word president. Right? Try to understand the difference between the identification and the description, those two uses. Think about president, right? If I said the president came to town, how am I using that? Am I using it descriptively or identifying? Identifying, right? Who came to town? It answers the question, who? The president came to town. But if I say Joe Biden is our current president, how am I using it? Descriptive, right? The identifier is Joe Biden. That's what I'm talking about. I'm describing him. What is he? He's the president, right? And we know what president means. Okay, so that gives you an example of something other than God where we use it in the same way. A second analogy that may be helpful is just to think about the word God in terms of it being a class. It's a kind. It's a kind of being, as it were, right? What's another one? What's another kind of being? What's another word that we would use like that? Man, right? The word man is analogous to God, or I'll tell you another one, dog, is analogous to God, right? And all the words that go with it. Think about the word deity, right? Deity speaks of the nature of a being, the class of a being, you could say, an uncreated, sovereign, worthy of worship being, right? Well, what's a, what do we have for deity in the, in the man world? What do we call it? Humanity, right? Or you probably don't know this word. I didn't know this word. I looked it up to see if it exists. It does exist. Canady is the word that you use for dogs to think about the, the attributes of what makes a dog a dog, right? Or think about the adjectives we have around it, right? There's the word divine that describes one who is God. What do we have in the man world? Human. Human, right? Human. What do we have in the dog world? Canine, right? And then in the same way that we said God could be used to identify or describe, dog can, right? Like uh, Scout is the crow's dog, right? I'm not identifying there, right? Or I could say the dog barked. I'm identifying there, right? So it's, it's, 
it just puts it maybe on a little bit of a lower shelf. Like, I mean, when we think of deity, it's like, it's invisible. It blows our mind. Like I've always used the example. It's like chickens in the coop talking about Shakespeare. Like it's, it doesn't make sense, right? But we can understand it in the terms of man or dog, right? And I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to say God is equivalent to those or anyway. I mean, God is much more, I'm just saying the word, the way the word is used is similar to the way we would use man or God. And that will become really helpful. And just one last example, that'll become helpful as we try to explain what is, how, how are we using this? Why does it, how can we call, how can the father be the God of Jesus? What does that mean? One, one more example, uh, you know, man is used in descriptive and identifying ways, just the way that dog was that I just used. Man is, will God dwell with man on the earth? Second Chronicles 6.18. It's descriptive, right? Will God, will this divine being come down with man? It would be like saying, will man dwell with the dogs out in the field or will man dwell with the chickens out in the, right? I mean, it's the same kind of thing or, or man can be used identifyingly. Yahweh God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now I know this is, you're like, oh my goodness, this is like back to middle school grammar. You're killing me here. I, Hang in there, because I think this will be helpful to explain what we mean. So now, we go to the next one. We understand a little bit about how God's used. It's used in three ways. To identify, it's used in a descriptive way, to not really give full deity to somebody, right? But to say that they're sovereign or over or submitted to. And then it's used in a descriptive way in the, in the full sense. Like, you know, a, a being who's truly divine in all ways, right? And again, we use that, sorry, we do that for dog, right? We might say to one of each other, you dog, you know, we don't mean to say they're a dog. We're saying there are aspects of what it means to be a dog that you're being like, right? Okay, so that would be the second one. Like, you, you, your bellies are gods. Like, we don't mean to deify their bellies. We just mean to say there are aspects of their bellies that are acting like God. So now, what do we mean when we say Jesus is God? Which of those three do we mean? Well, the first one, the identifying one, might be easiest to understand if we said Jesus is the God. That, that might be, do we mean that? Do we mean Jesus is the God? We're identifying him. Is that what we mean when we say we attribute God to Jesus? I don't think so. And primarily because the way the revelation of God was revealed over time, the, the identification, I mean, God the Father can be called God and without... Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. Your God, God, your God. You can call God, and we know we're talking about the Father. I've done it several times. I've said, who's that? And y'all have said, oh, it's the Father, right? The use of God as an identifier is so common to be referred to the Father. It's not often, maybe never, but not often that it's used that way of Jesus. And I don't mean that, that Jesus isn't identified that way. He's only described, which is going to be what I say later. I don't mean that Jesus isn't identified that way to say that only the Father is the God, the Father and the Father alone. It's just an indication that as it was revealed, that is how people understood the Father. He was God, and they could refer to him that way. And when later the Son is revealed and there's an understanding that there is another divine being in the Godhead, then that years of usage didn't just go away. It didn't, it didn't just go away. And another reason why I don't think it's right to think of the use of God for Jesus as identifying is, is when you say the God, in English at least, it sort of gives a sense of the highest or the, the ultimate, right? And, and honestly, as we'll see, Jesus 
though sovereign over all creation, though sovereign over all other classes, whether canine, human, whatever, Jesus is sovereign over all, you know, ultimately he is submissive to the Father. It said that in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, God is the head of Jesus. It says it in 1 Corinthians 15, after Jesus subdues all things, what does he do? He he submits to the Father so that God is all and in all, even in that verse, so that God is in all and all. He's talking about the Father when he says that God is in all and all. So I don't think it's right to think of when it says Jesus is God that it's talking about an identifying sense. So what about the second one? That it's attributing to him aspects of deity, particularly sovereignty, but not full deity, right? And I can appreciate uh, what's being attempting here. Again, you want to make it, you know, there's a desire to, to maintain a distinction between the Father and Jesus, right? But is it enough to just say that when Jesus is called God, it's just meaning he's sovereign over creation, but he doesn't have all the other aspects of deity. He's, he's a God in the sense that our belly, uh, the Philippian enemy's bellies were gods, you know, more than that, you know, that was just a little sense. Jesus has lots of it, just not fully. And I, and I don't think this is the right way either, as you could expect from the last weeks that we've been together. I mean, Colossians 2.9 says that in Jesus, in bodily form, dwells the fullness of deity. So the Bible doesn't speak about it in partial terms. It speaks about it as the fullness of deity being in Jesus. And, and though Jesus is distinct from the Father, as we've said, he's also very different from every man and every angel in the sense that he existed before them, right? John 17, you know, you're going to restore to me the glory we had before the foundation of the world. He created everything that was ever created. He himself isn't created, as we've studied the last weeks. And the highest order of creation, what is that? Beyond divine is the angels, right? They're higher than man. They're higher than dogs. They're higher than the highest order of creation. Angels are commanded to worship him. Hebrews 1, 6, let all the angels of God worship him. Revelation 22, John falls down to worship the angel. And the angel says, mm-mm. Don't worship me. Worship God. So I don't think the second way is also the right way. I don't think that the, the apostles, the Old Testament scriptures, or the church fathers are attributing the word God to Jesus to mean, hey, he's sovereign over a lot, but he's not fully divine. Instead of saying Jesus is the God, no, identifying, or Jesus is a God, which is what this last view would have been, the, the scriptures tend to say Jesus is God. Right, which would be that third category. And that's what we have in John 1. John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He wasn't the God. And the Word was God. He wasn't just a God. He was God. He's, we could say, divine. He's full deity. He is not created. He's sovereign almost of everything. Minus one, right? He's submissive to the Father. He's worthy of worship. He accepts worship. He has all the attributes of deity. All that's left is, then if that's the case, if that's the way that we're using the word God with Jesus, how in the world does he himself have a God? What does it mean? What does it mean that he's truly and fully divine, full deity, uncreated, sovereign, worthy of worship, Full deity dwelt in him in bodily form. He receives worship, but there's one over him. And one that is called his God. The Watchtower, Jehovah's Witness publishing arm, says, Jesus showed he was a, create, he was a creature separate from God 
and that he, Jesus, had a God above him, a God whom he worshipped, a God whom he called Father. So he's got to be a creature. You don't do that if you're not a creature. So what's the enigma? Do we, do we backpedal and say, okay, Jesus is a God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Aaron's would say, or do we invest in Jesus with the fullness of the term God, that third use, predicate of him full deity, but try to figure out how he himself has a God? Well, it's actually not as hard as it seemed to me in California, and it's not that hard at all. And it seems very clear, based on what we said in previous weeks, to invest Jesus as just a God is to not do justice to what, how he's described. He is full deity. He is given worship. He is not created. And it isn't that hard to understand what it means for the Father to be his God. And let me explain that as we conclude. First, a prevalent answer. I don't think it's a very good one. A prevalent answer is this. Listen to this quote. For Jesus, according to his human nature, God is his God. And for Jesus and his deity, God is his Father. Now, it's not a terrible explanation, and I think there's some support, but I don't even think it's necessary. You don't have to appeal to Jesus' humanity and say, hey, it's only in his humanity that God is his God. I mean, you think about Revelation 3, where he calls him my God four times. That's the exalted Christ. I'm not saying he has lost all his humanity there, but I mean, that's a picture of his glory there, and he's calling the Father his God. And, and again, it's not, it's not required. In fact, I'd ask you, is it required of being fully divine? Is it required of being full deity to be the ultimate sovereign? That's the, that's the implied question in the challenge from the Jehovah's Witnesses. He can't be full deity if he's not the ultimate sovereign, if he's not the highest, right? Well, first, it's obvious from our previous talk that the word God can be used without implying full sovereignty, highest sovereignty. Satan is the God of this world, right? And yet there are ones over him. But, but, but again, I think a Jehovah's Witness would rightly say to me, no, but we're not talking about that use of God. We're talking about the use where it's full deity, truly deity. In that case, you have to be ultimate sovereign for that to be true of you. Okay, is that true? Well, think about it for a second. Let's leave the ineffable. Let's, let's come down for just a second. Let's try to argue by analogy. And let's ask similar questions, not of deity, but of humanity. Right? We know humanity well enough. And hey, we share some qualities of God, right? We're submissive to God, but we have a lot of sovereignty, right? We were endowed with sovereignty over all other creatures here on earth, right? So in a sense, we're kind of like God. And more importantly than even that, we have sovereignty over each other. Is that right? In, hu in humanity, do we have situations where somebody is over another human? Absolutely, right? I have a boss, and my boss has a boss. And let me take the easiest example. So at Chick-fil-A, that we have a, a chief executive officer, and we have a gardener, right? Now, is the chief executive officer sovereign, as far as the company is concerned, over that gardener? Absolutely. Absolutely. Has so much more power and authority. Are they both equally human? Absolutely, right? Now, that's in, that's in humanity. Let me give you a, a more poignant example, and that's marriage, right? What about marriage? Now, the husband, as we believe here, he's the ultimate leader over his family. But is he more human than his wife? No. And more important is what does the Bible say about marriage? It says that in this case, though there are two persons, they unite to become one, one flesh, right? And we've all laughed as Frank describes the relationship between his daughter and her man, right? On Wednesday nights, he refers to 
his daughter's uh, significant other as her man. But this is helpful, right? That's no different than Jesus calling the father his God, right? So for us to say my man is no different than Jesus to look at the father and say my God, right? It's, it's the same usage. It's no different. We do the same thing. And one final example, which I think is the, the best, turn to Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, where it talks about the creation of the first man and woman. I want you to turn to Genesis 5, though. You remember when God created man, he created them male and female, right? He created them with role distinctions from the very beginning, right? I mean, Paul grounds role distinctions, role distinctions in the New Testament back to the creation account because there were role distinctions in the creation account. The female was created for the male to be his helpmate, right? At the same time, they were both made in the image of God. They were both fully human. So again, subordination and function doesn't imply a difference in nature. But look at Genesis 5.2 and think about the implications of this for deity. Read what it says, 5.2. God, the Father, created them... That's plural, right? Why is it them? Why is it plural? There's two people, right? He created two people. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them, that's plural, and named them man. That's the word Adam. He named them man. Them, plural, he named them man, singular. And the day when they, plural, were created. Adam and Eve were two persons, different in function, the same in nature, and called by one designation, man. Now, let's take that and apply that analogy to deity, to God. The father and son are two persons, different in function, the same in nature, and called by one designation, God. Right? So, again, it can be hard for us to think about, you know, people can say the Trinity is so impossible, it's this ineffable thing, you're making it up, it's a bunch of hooey. It's actually very close to us. It's very close to what we see in our lives. Now, I'm not saying there's more to it than that. Don't get me wrong. God is three, for instance, right? And God is uncreated and eternal. But I even think about that. I mean, Eve came from Adam, right? From his rib, from inside him. And the fact that Jesus would be there'd be birthing language if Proverbs 8 is about him, about him doesn't mean that he's not divine. And it doesn't mean that how divine beings, which again, now, I'm, now I am talking about like chickens in a chicken coop talking about Shakespeare. I don't know how to describe all that. But it doesn't mean that, uh, that Jesus is any less glorious if he were taken in some sense from the Father or generated from the Father or you know, received life from the Father in eternity past. That was not in my notes and not clear, so I apologize. All right, let me give two conclusions. First, a conclusion to today, and then a conclusion. These are really short. And then a conclusion to the overall series. So, conclusion. Both the authors of Scripture and the early church fathers refer to Jesus as God. At the same time, they, and Jesus himself, speak of the Father as not only the Father of the Son, but also the God of the Son. But those two affirmations are in no way irreconcilable. In fact, it's not hard to reconcile them if you give it a little bit of thought. You can affirm Jesus is fully divine, not a God, God, full deity, fully divine, without predicating of him ultimate sovereignty. In the same way, 
that the gardener at Chick-fil-A is fully human despite not having much sovereignty in that domain. Put differently, Jesus may be of such a nature, and he is, as to be set apart from all creation, worthy of worship, uncreated, without being in function the sovereign of all. Jesus is God in that he's both divine and the ruler of creation. The Father is God in that he's both divine and the ruler of everything, including Jesus. Now that was the conclusion of the message. Let me give a quick conclusion to the entire series, very quick. Jude would have us contend against false teachers who would deny Jesus by reducing his status to be more like us. That was his, remember that was the thing. They reject his authority in the same way that um, Korah and the people said, hey, why do y'all think you're holy? We're just like you. You're not special, right? Or Cain did to Abel or Balaam did to Israel. We want to reduce your glory. We want to reduce your status. You're just like us. That's what Jude would have us contend against when it comes to Jesus. He's like us. He's a created being like us. Different, yeah, maybe, but but he's a created being like us. My understanding of the scriptures is rather that Jesus is uncreated, worthy of worship, sovereign over all except the Father, and that this last distinction in no way detracts from his glory. These are really hard things to contemplate, but they're very important. And while I think we're all probably glad to be done, I hope the series is a blessing to you in thinking through how you ought to think of Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll sing a song and and be dismissed for fellowship. Lord, we thank you preeminently for loving us, even though we aren't. We are of a, of a lower class, as it were, Father. We are a different kind. Uh, for you to adopt us into your family uh, and to bring us to be one of you, to glorify us, to be like you. I don't mean to be one of you, to be like you and to have glory and to share your glory and to uh, share the things that are rightly yours and that we have no stake in or claim to is all of grace for you to do that. And so we thank you for that, Father. And we ask that as those who want to follow you, who want to learn to be like you, who want to be conformed to you, who want to think like you and act like you, Father, that you would give us grace because it is very much in in so many ways like... uh, like dogs trying to become like humans and and accept, Father, that you are so gracious that you give us your spirit, that you sanctify us, that you work in us, and you give us your scriptures too and give us the ability to read them and understand them and uh, teach us even through things like hermeneutics how how to understand. And so we're very thankful for all of this. We're thankful for your grace. It's all a grace. And we ask, God, that the The thought of that, the understanding that we will be heirs of yours, co-heirs with your son, your unique and only son, would cause us, Father, to live holy lives, would cause us to live sacrificial lives of love, bearing each other's burdens, loving earnestly and zealously, and, uh, Father, just continuing in the faith, uh, trusting you until the time that you return and make all those things consummated and full. In Jesus' name, amen.